Sustainable Solutions to Fix Healthcare in America podcast. Each week, we explore bipartisan solutions to healthcare reform through discussions with leading experts from across the country. To learn more, go to purplesolutions.org and join us at our Healthcare Economic Summit on July 31st. Hello, everybody. I'm Dan Sam, Dean of the Batterman School of Business at Concordia University and Director of the ARCS Think Tank, here again with another issue of our Purple Solutions podcast. And I'm real excited again to have uh, today Dr. Greg Watchmaker. Uh, and Dr. Watchmaker is a practicing hand surgeon uh, here, here in Wisconsin. And his outcomes research in carpal tunnel syndrome have received top editorial honors by the journal Hand this year in 2020 for the most impactful published work in the field of hand surgery. And even though he's a practicing hand surgeon, Dr. Watchmaker started his education in the field of computer science and led a team at Washington University of Medicine that developed the first medical software to map atrial fibrillation during heart surgery. So he kind of crosses medicine and, and, and informatics computer science, uh, and especially relevant for our discussion today. He's developed applications uh, used to deliver hospital quality to the federal government, and more recently, patient-facing web-based outcomes assessment tools. Uh, importantly for me is he is a contributor to our Purple Solutions book on the topic of unintended consequences of federally mandated quality reporting. And this is something we will talk about on the July 31st summit as well. So, so Greg, thanks a lot for speaking with me today and contributing to the Purple Solutions book. Before we get into the benefits or dangers of federally mandated quality reporting, which you'll tell us what that means, uh, right now, I hope, actually, can you tell us a little bit about how the government monitors quality in the delivery of healthcare by frontline providers like you? How do they do this? What's the process? Sure. Well, Dan, thanks for the introduction. Uh, historically, when I first started in practice, the way the federal government collected most of their information is the care we provide turns into claims, which we then send to the federal government. And that claim information not only is used to process payments, but you can also glean a bit of information from that regarding uh, what diagnoses a patient had and what treatment was rendered. So the earliest efforts were really done, what I think of as in the flow of patient care. It was information that was moving out of our office anyway, and um, there was really very little burden to it. Okay. There are limits though to that information. And what happens is when the federal government wants to define more narrowly a specific target, we'll add on top of that information additional uh, reporting pieces of information that uh, they wish collected. And, and that now falls out of the flow. And there need to be processes then and, and web-based portals that the federal government creates and then software on the hospital side, which is what you alluded to, I write, um, and also at the private practice and group practice level, there needs to be additional personnel and software that inputs this information in order to send it off to the federal government. So we've really, over the last 20 years, as quality uh, measures have become more complicated, we've kind of pivoted from information that occurred in the flow of patient care to information that is collected that is outside that normal flow of information. Is this mostly through like Medicare and Medicaid or is it broader than that? Uh, Medicare, just because the federal regulations are what we are typically responding to, they are the ones that are very complex and uh, have a lot of data fields. Medicare drives the narrative and that typically when they come up with a reporting measure, a uh, 
private insurance carrier, if that measure is around for a while, will latch on to that and say, well, us too. You know, we would like some information or uh, if that information is publicly released, uh, they will actually look to the public disclosure of that information in order to use that for their own purposes. And the, uh, um, the amount of reporting that you're having to do on quality to the government, uh, say relative to 10, 20 years ago, is, is it increasing about the same? Or if it is increasing, is it increasing a lot? Like what's the magnitude of this? Sure, well, it's increasing a lot. Uh, if you take a look 20 years ago, there was the onus was really on the government to collect what they could from what was given. And the tables have completely turned on that in a way that really the onus is now on the physician. So when you see, let's say me, for example, I'm a hand surgeon and you come to see me for a broken finger or carpal tunnel syndrome. What you would find if I wish to be a reporting physician who's in compliance with many of the guidelines of participation so that I don't get financially penalized for being a non-participator, I might now ask you or have my staff ask you whether you're a smoker and mm -hmm. whether you've tried to stop, whether you have problems with weight gain and what we can do with your diet to change that or all of the medications that you're on for the various things, uh, the other health issues that I don't treat. So mm -hmm. it very much brings forward the fact that I end up addressing as a specialist in a narrow field, many things which are outside my realm. So not only is there greater reporting, but the broadness of the reporting ends up snaring a whole bunch of fields that really distracts them from what I do, which is uh, a very narrow field. Sure, okay. So um, I'm a person who likes to believe human nature is a positive thing and government's trying to do good for us and all that. So, so what were the, and this is reporting quality metrics, that seems good. What, what, are, what, what are the intentions of the government in, in doing this and, and the people that are deciding on these quality metrics, do you think they're competent to be doing this? Are, are these good metrics that, that are being developed by people that know? Sure. I really believe, as I uh, stated in the book chapter I wrote, Purple Solution, uh -huh. that these are smart people who are well-intentioned. I really do believe that the intent of improving quality and then reducing cost, it has been the mantra of every administration that has come and gone, every Congress that has written laws in this area. And I do believe that the people who are writing these rules are intelligent, they are in some cases physicians or they are guided by physicians. The problem that we run into is, although they, they sound good, uh, in healthcare there are many things that sound good and then biologically don't end up being good. They, they end up yeah. being the inverse of what you expect. The human body uh, is very complicated that way. So the issue we get into is if you do something that sounds good and there is not a large body of underlying data and, and rigor and scientific study, what you end up basically doing is constructing an experiment. You have an idea and you put it upon the entire public through regulations and then we watch how that experiment goes. Uh, because so many of these were born of ideology rather than underlying uh, science. And I think that's probably one of the biggest drawbacks is that uh, at a political level, there are many things that are ideological that uh, when you really get down to the science, as this pandemic has shown us, the intersection of what ends up being true in medicine and health and what we wish to be true, um, mm -hmm. they are not always the same. So when you apply them on a large scale, 
you actually make big moves in healthcare. You know, physicians and hospitals do react to their payments being cut and their access to patients being removed. So I do believe that these policies are born of good intent. They really are. But I think the whole idea that you could legislate quality of care, I think it's just a failed premise at its root in that healthcare data changes so rapidly. Like the pandemic showed, we we were doing this and then um, a study showed that that was a bad idea and we pivoted. And to a public observing this rapid change in healthcare information, I think it's probably frustrating or a bit unnerving. But the truth is that is the way medicine is. A new study comes out that refutes prior information or an old study is revisited and the data is found to be flawed and and we modify what we do. And the thing is, healthcare moves fast enough and information comes fast enough that it takes so long to pass legislation and then it sits on the books for years and years. And, And we continue to have to follow those guidelines in a way that instead of these regulations really promoting best practice, they really tend to endorse old and in many cases harmful practices that have uh, subsequently been disproven. Yeah, no, I mean, I think your example of COVID was a good one. We, we've seen a lot of pivots and some of it is the media too, but you know, should we take hydroxychloroquine or not? And I know there was a big clinical study done recently that, that completed not long ago that, that had a, a good solid conclusion on that. Um, and then the, should we be wearing the surgical mask or not? I remember sure. in the beginning we were told not to, and then we were told to. So, so I would endorse uh, those. Yeah, I believe okay. the data is there on those. <laughs> yeah, and I still see studies coming out. And so that's sort of a point well taken is, is the science and the medical best practices is constantly evolving and sometimes very fast. So, sure. so I guess you, you kind of maybe answered my next question largely, which is, um, What's the downside of these federally mandated quality reporting requirements? Because like I said earlier, it seems like a really good thing to require certain quality metrics so that you avoid you know, chaos and charlatans in healthcare and, and make sure that consumers are taken care of. I mean, I, I guess your point was that you need to be able to adjust to the science and best practices and one size doesn't fit all. I mean, is, there, is, is that it or is there more to it than that? You know, I can think of two other things that uh, these regulations uh, harm us through. Number one is the tremendous cost. When we do reporting, it, it's no longer in the flow of information. Therefore, it takes additional staff and infrastructure um, to do. And the uh, American Hospital Association did a good study I read a couple of years ago. And what they looked at is a medium-sized hospital and how many staff does a medium-sized hospital need in order to gather that data and then collate it in the way the federal government wants and then transport it uh, to the federal government through electronic interfaces. And what they found was that it took 59 full-time employees at an average-sized hospital to do federal reporting. That is an astronomical cost to our healthcare system for each hospital that could have been used in direct patient care. So I think yeah. the, the tremendous cost is, is one that is completely aside from uh, whether we're providing good care or not. And mm-hmm. I would say the other thing I can think of is the return to paternalism. In that mm-hmm. when I started healthcare, a bygone era before mine was that the doctor knows best and the doctor will assess your information, he'll tell you what's right and you'll follow that. Mm-hmm. As I came into medicine and medical school, that completely changed. And we were told that the patient is the center of healthcare, 
And you as a physician, as a doctor, the word doctor actually, if you look at its derivation and physician is teacher. You are empowered to teach the patient about their problem, to paint the alternatives, to nurture them and help them along the way. But in the end, the patient is the center of your care and is the central decision maker. So there was this huge migration from paternalism towards patient empowerment and shared decision-making. Yeah. And I think that was a real positive. And I grew up in that era in medical school and I practiced that to that day, to this day. And I, I really think that that still is the right way to practice medicine. Seems with to fit with American culture because we're very individualistic. We want to be in sure. control of things. I mean, it fits. I, I think it is. It, it is the right way to be. And, it, and yeah. it's, it's enlightening to patients when you give them information that lets them decision make. They can take that information home. They can process it. They're not left with just what gets done to them. They, they yeah. have the why. They can think about. They can revisit. But with federal regulations, insidiously, we have returned to paternalism. And mm. it's interesting how the federal government actually sits in the exam room with us in a way that patients, I really think, would be chilled to know in that mm. When they listen to their doctor's advice about you should do this and we should get that test and you need to come back uh, you know, in, in X number of months or years to do this, I don't think patients understand that those words said to them in many cases are not based upon the underlying experience of that physician. They're not based upon the articles that that physician has read in their field, but they are based upon regulations that have been put in place that penalize the physician if they don't get the patient to do that and incentivize the physician financially if they do. And I think it is that sort of hidden element in the exam room that most patients really don't appreciate. And uh, in, in the book chapter uh, that I wrote for Purple Solutions, I actually give a very clear example of a family member of mine who uh, was undergoing very critical care and a caregiver came in to express what should be done, which was verbatim from a healthcare guideline that had already been proven as harmful to patient care. And it just, there was a year and two lag between when new data showed something different and this, this idea had not yet been removed from the hospital's processes. So I think that return to paternalism um, that is now part of accountable care organizations, you know, if you haven't heard of them, these organizations are an assemblance of doctors and nurses and administrators and hospitals that are all coming together and are supposed to wrap a population um, and account for their care. You are responsible for the good health of a certain number of people in your community. And mm -hmm. it, it sounds really good and you get rewarded if that group does well health-wise and you get penalized financially if they don't. The problem is, the idea of an organization accounting for your care instead of you being responsible for your own care, that is a complete paradigm shift. Yeah. I believe that nobody is more interested in your own care as you are, and this push towards organizations being responsible for you rather than you being responsible for you, I think is a premise that just isn't gonna play out in a way that gives us better quality at reduced cost. Yeah. And I think if patients and consumers understood that, they wouldn't want it that way. I mean, it's paternalistic. It's kind of Orwellian, too. There's this behind-the-scenes force dictating what should be done. So, um, and to your first point about, you know, it being expensive to, to have all this compliance in, in place, I think maybe you talked about it a little bit. We had the 
former president of the AMA wrote a chapter as well about her concerns about small physician groups being able to compete with the large, large provider networks. And part of the driving force for that were the regulations that were so expensive to satisfy that small provider groups couldn't, couldn't do it. So they had to kind of uh, uh, be taken in by the larger, uh, you know, what, what she called the industrial medical complex. So, so those regulations well, you know, I, also led to that. <laughs> you know, you know, Dan, that I sit fortunate in that I started my life as a computer science major and I actually yeah. write healthcare interfaces for the federal government for hospitals to submit data. So I understand the regulations. I know them down to the lines of code that help <laughs> transfer that information. But maybe one thing you don't know is I am a non-compliant, non-participating physician in the federal quality programs. Uh, I analyze uh, in a very data-centric way how much effort and cost uh, my staff would have to, uh, you know, expend to comply. All of the additional uh, distracting sort of health elements I would have to get from my patients that completely were unrelated and distracting from the treatment of their hand. And when I did the cost uh, analysis of it, it actually was a, a losing proposition. So every single Medicare patient I treat, every day I treat uh, patients in my office, I receive a fine. On, on every single um, statement I get back from Medicare, it tells me I would have received this, but because I don't agree to report quality metrics, even though I report in mass for the hospitals, on a personal level, I have found that that distraction from patient care, it, it rises above, uh, and I'm willing to uh, have a lower reimbursement in order to stay focused on my patients. Uh, so you're but basically being... There are many physicians who can't make that choice because yeah. they, they sit in situations where um, they just cannot afford to be non-compliant. And right. uh, I really hope that that changes. Yeah, I hope so too. You're being punished in a way for trying to do what you think is best for your patients. Yeah. So what about, so CMS under Seema Verma, which we had invited her to speak at the event and she was thinking of coming, but unfortunately it looks like she's not gonna be able to speak. But under her leadership uh, at CMS and, and maybe elsewhere in government, uh, what changes do you see on, underway in the government uh, that are gonna improve this situation or maybe make it worse? I don't know. Um, sure. Are there gonna be changes in, in how we regulate or over-regulate the delivery of healthcare at the front lines? So Seema Verma, I've, I've never met her, but I'll tell you, I've, I've read her writings from before she came to her current role as the uh, head of uh, Centers for Medicare Services and also while she's there. And I'll tell you from somebody who believes that uh, regulation is burdensome and that administrative uh, burden is costly without benefit, I could not be uh, more of a kindred spirit to her. Um, it was very surprising for me to have somebody take on a large administrative role who believes that a large administrative role is a problem. And she has articulated that clearly. She has said that um, we have failed in the past, that uh, these uh, regulations, when you do the cost analysis, have not worked, and that we need to unburden healthcare. So I, I almost feel like she should be given an honorary medical degree. Uh, she really does the spouse um, uh, views with regard to patient empowerment, the reduction of regulation, the return to patient-centered care um, uh, that you know I have talked about. So um, no, I think CMS has already uh, moved mountains in what they have changed. Uh, there's no doubt. 
And um, a good example of that actually happened just in the last couple of months because uh, me as a physician, as a surgeon especially, I like to hands-on my patients, touch patients, move their joints, examine them. That's important to me. But with the coming of the pandemic, I had a vulnerable older patient population, uh, partly that really did not want to come in and see me. But yet, the regulations to perform telemedicine, the, all that I need to do in order to properly treat a Medicare recipient and have that be a valid telemedicine event were onerous. And I had looked at them, and with my background, I certainly could have achieved it, but at great cost. Seema Verma in, in striking speed within a week or two of the pandemic reaching a high level, she immediately changed how Medicare views telemedicine. She rewrote the rules, she suspended the onerous ones, she put in place new ones, all within a week's period of time. And telemedicine has advanced in the last two months more than it has in the decade that preceded. So I have really been impressed with how uh, Seema Verma has been able to take issues that are wrong in healthcare, and uh, she is surrounded by a smart group of people who uh, also help point out, well, if we want to make this better, what would the healthcare community respond to? And I have been uh, truly impressed with uh, the moves she has made uh, uh, in CMS. These changes, I've talked to other people too about you know, how COVID has induced a, a, a rapid change in, in policy and regulations in response, some of which have led to, you know, a, an improvement in, in telemedicine and removal of barriers. Um, in that sense, COVID is obviously a horrible thing, but it forced the system to adjust and make a change that's probably good. Um, is that going to be permanent, do you think? Is that these, these changes well, in regulations? It's, it's as permanent as the regulatory changes are. Because <laughs> no new technology became available during COVID. Yeah. The, the technology that we all embraced has been there for years and, and many years. It has been used by industry, um, other sectors, and has not been used by the healthcare sector, except to a very small amount, because of the regulations that the federal government put on top of the use of technology. So it is very interesting how no new technology grew up out of COVID, we just suddenly got the attention of our federal government to change the burdensome regulations. And it is astounding how fast it changed. Uh, in my practice, I've done now hundreds and hundreds of telehealth visits just since uh, the pandemic began. And at hmm. the beginning of every telehealth visit, um, I flatter you know, my older patients with how well they were able to get into the uh, co connection and, and how well that they're able to navigate this. And I ask each of them, so how many telehealth visits have you had? And I've only had two out of those hundreds who had ever had a prior telehealth visit with a provider. So just in a matter of a couple of months, we have taken a technology that was there and available to other sectors and brought into healthcare. And it will stay provided that the administration allows the regulatory changes that occurred a couple months ago to become permanent. And, right. and there is a big groundswell already to make uh, those changes permanent. And if they stay permanent, I think we all benefit. But yeah. what it really was, was a reduction in regulation. Yeah. I mean, some of that was medical licensure, right? So that you could talk to a doctor who's not in your state uh, as well, so. You know, it, it really wasn't that as much as it was my ability 
to use different platforms of technology because oh. there are always data privacy issues and the, the federal things, government yeah. painted very high the bar that you had to cross in order to for it to be considered licensable and, and valid. And then there were a whole host of little check boxes that you had to hit with regard to uh, what you were doing uh, during your telehealth visit and why it was telehealth versus in person. Um, right. And then there was a whole other uh, basket of, well, how do you actually submit a claim for payment to Medicare? And the process oh. was completely different for telehealth than it was for a standard you know, in-office visit. So the system was needlessly complex. And what Seema Verma did you know, with the strike of a pen is she said, doctor's visits in person are the same as telehealth. If you are <laughs> engaging with live video and uh, communicating healthcare information in an interactive way, we consider that to be valid um, engagement. And just by that one small change, the floodgates opened for our ability to do telehealth. And, and it was a very positive, uh, my seniors who I treat, they were so thankful and they have really no idea that there was a single person uh, in Ms. Verma who truly just changed the landscape and their health in the process. Yeah, I mean, it's gonna make healthcare more accessible too. Some people have trouble with transportation or if you're living in a rural community without much healthcare, it's going to be good on, on a lot of levels, I think. So. Oh, I, I, I will be a permanent, uh, I, will, I will permanently be doing telehealth unless um, the regulations walk back my ability. <laughs> no, it's, it, it is here to stay for me, provided, uh, you know, the, uh, the government feels it uh, similarly. And that kind of gets to my next question, but maybe you already answered that one, is if you were in charge in the government, what changes would you make to, to improve healthcare delivery or, or keep us moving in a good direction? It sounds like you're, you're kind of pretty happy with some of the changes that are happening this year, so. Sure, I think the other thing, if I had to think about uh, not only reducing regulations, I think uh, when we look back retrospectively at regulations and whether they've achieved their endpoint, it, it really is a, a, a story tale of failure. and. I detail that in the book chapter, analyzing several of the largest, most expensive programs that the federal government has initiated to prove quality. And when good scientists with a lot of data look back years after those programs were initiated and sometimes terminated uh, and, and figure out the benefit, they find them failed. So if I had to uh, pick you know, what would be my number one, it would be that we truly do not keep traveling this path. Uh, it seems like Every new administration, every new Congress that gets seated has these ideas and their term is short enough that unlike myself, who's now 20 years in and has watched them come and go and come and go with uh, poor result, um, I believe just educating uh, you know, our legislature that this is a failed attempt because the underlying premise is failed. If you believe that you can craft legislation for patient care that is more sophisticated than you know, a physician who grew up their entire life focused towards patient care, I think that's a, a false premise that you, you have to try to extinguish. Because I do what I do because of the pride in what I do and the enthusiasm for reading my journals every month, communicating with other physicians about complicated cases. That type of passion for, for best patient care, you can't write that into legislation. Uh, yeah. Legislation is only going to stymie that. So yeah. I think to um, to reduce the burden, and I think the other thing I would do 
is cost. I think consumers need to um, return uh, to the market of healthcare because if you don't know what your care costs, you, there's no way that you can actually, as a patient, help the system repair them. And um, you know, the analogy I think I gave earlier with regard to when you have an urgent health condition, you know, do you go always to the emergency room or do you see your primary doctor or do you go to you know, a small um, urgent care clinic um, or do you check on your app uh, to see a specialist who yeah. you, know, you can have immediately available 24 seven? Well, those different venues of care have very different costs and, uh, and different pros and cons. And until you actually put cost into the equation, um, uh, people aren't sensitive to that. So I think yeah. consumers of healthcare, just like consumers of any other service or product, they really need to know, or they are not going to be good participants in helping us control costs nationwide. Right, so price transparency, and there are changes underway to uh, require yeah. that now. Yeah. Sure. So, well, that kind of leads into, I guess, our, my very last question is, <laughs> um, we have an election year coming up, um, and I, I guess I'm wondering, what would you tell politicians? You sort of, you know, summarized it, I guess, previously, um, with regard to sort of uh, uh, empower at the physician-patient interface, so not so much centralized control with regulations and price transparency, but say you had Donald or Joe in the elevator for, for a minute or so, what would you tell them? Some variation of what you, what you just shared with me, so. I think the thing I would try to do is to um, point out, uh, which was something you asked me in the chapter I wrote for Purple Solutions, point out the history of uh, what we've tried and what has failed and try to uh, educate both uh, you know, legislators as well as voters that this whole um, holy grail of uh, legislating quality is in many ways a failed premise. Um, it shouldn't be in the domain of a political body. Um, it is not the right milieu in which it can flourish. So yeah. I think uh, educating people about the, you know, the failed past and trying not to have it reincarnated um, every you know, uh, four years, I think is uh, an important uh, message for me. Um, I guess the thing is, in the end, whether you know, in a government payer system where the government's the intermediary, or if um, it's private care through your employer, at the end of the day, somebody pays for health care. And yeah. uh, in the end, it's us, whether it's through taxes or whether it's through a deduction from our uh, paycheck, somebody has to pay for that care. And yeah. if you feel that you can get care and not know the cost of care, and if you feel that others are going to pay for your care, I think that's a, a failed premise. In the end, we all directly uh, pay for our care. So yeah. um, uh, I think being a part of the solution, going back towards the patient-centric approach uh, is what is really going to make uh, the difference. And uh, I see that happening. I hope it continues. Uh, and that would kind of be my message out there. Okay, well, that's a great message. And I, th I think you conveyed a little bit of that in your chapter in the book as well. So. So thanks, thanks for talking to me now, and thanks for the contribution to the chapter. And we will continue this this topic in, on July 31st. I think you're going to be in Iceland, but if, if not, hopefully you could speak at the event. But we will talk on this topic in, in any case. So, so thanks very much, Greg. Yeah, you're welcome. This podcast is brought to you by Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Concordia University, Ann Arbor. However, the opinions and views are not meant to be official statements on their behalf.